We are ready now to move into 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And so I think we can uh, remind ourselves about chapter 1. If you, if you just go back to chapter 1 and look at the opening words of verse 2. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you. So this chapter bursts with gratitude to God. And it just bursts with excitement because the Thessalonians truly had been saved. So remember that Paul and his team planted the church in Thessalonica. Then they were quickly torn away, leaving behind baby Christians and a baby church. And meanwhile, the Thessalonians faced great affliction because they had believed the gospel. And yet, when Paul thought back to what happened when he preached the gospel to them, he remembered that their response seemed to show that God was doing a saving work. And then Timothy brought back this great report about how they were doing. Their their lives were showing the change of the gospel, and that was impacting Christians all over the region and even beyond. So chapter 1 is just joy and gratitude to God. But now chapter 2, and chapter 2 is different. Because the people in Thessalonica who wanted to wipe out this baby church, and that's not an overstatement, right? They would have loved for there to be no church of Christ in Thessalonica. They had a new plan, and that was to sow doubt in the minds of the Thessalonians about Paul and about the church planning team. Why did Paul really come? What were his real motives? What was he trying to get out of you? Are you sure that Paul wasn't just one of these guys? I mean, look at this guy. Cool wagon, first of all. Cool name. Probably self-appointed, but he's a professor with a middle initial. That always helps. Uh, he's got an impressive appearance. And what do you know? He's from a place called Enchanted Springs, Texas. Not on any maps, but he's from there. And he has, he, he is a medicine man. He is a rainmaker. And he has miracle elixir. Wow. I don't think that they would have had somebody quite like this back in Paul's day. Um, But they had people of the same category, right? And they definitely had traveling speakers and philosophers and orators who could come to town and wow the crowds and gain glory and money for themselves. As uh, Jeffrey Wema writes, public speaking was a major competitive sport. So, maybe Paul and his whole thing about this Jesus who had died and risen again and all that, maybe it was just a routine. Maybe it was just an act to get money or to get glory. And then he would head out of town. Oh, hey, isn't that what happened? Wasn't Paul here just a little while and then he headed out of town? So what we have here in chapter 2 
as a defense of Paul's ministry in the form of some autobiography. He's writing about himself and the visit to Thessalonica, but what he's actually appealing to is their own memory of these things. You know what we were like. You know what we did when we were there. So let's just talk through the text together, and then I'd like to just use this today as an example of how each of us in our own Bible reading might take a text like this and apply it to ourselves. So look with me, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. In other words, it wasn't an empty show. It wasn't just an outward routine with no substance. Verse 2, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. The end of that verse 2, we could say, in the face of great opponents. So, though in Philippi, Paul had been beaten with rods and put in the stocks in the prison because he preached the gospel, he came to Thessalonica anyways. Normally, when a huckster finds out the people in this region aren't receiving the message too kindly, you know, they've started spreading the word that the elixir doesn't really work. Normally, the huckster gets out of the area. But when Paul got thrown out of Philippi, he just continued down the road to the next major town, knowing he might get imprisoned and beaten again. Because, but he did it because this wasn't just an empty show. So even though coming to Thessalonica, it was like facing a great opponent. There was great opposition, conflict there. God still gave him the boldness to keep proclaiming the good news. Verse 3, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Could we say that about our guy in the wagon, our, our dear professor up there? Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Note that it was an appeal, not a speech, not a presentation, not a stage show. It was an urgent, heartfelt appeal, and it didn't come from error that's, that's probably referring to error like a moral defect or impurity like an impure motive or deception, any attempt to deceive. That was the word for catching fish with bait. So basically, the people in Thessalonica who wanted to take down this new church family were trying to make them doubt Paul's motives. But the accusations were not true. Verse 4, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. If you are using our reading plan in in the book, we're in the book of Acts right now, and we just read this week, we read Paul's account of his conversion after Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus. And one of the things that's really interesting there is that Paul makes it clear that after Jesus met him and saved him, he wanted to stay in Jerusalem and preach about Jesus because he thought that those Jews, remember, he he was from Tarsus, but he grew up in Jerusalem. 
And so Paul was thinking, these Jews who have known me my whole life, these Jews who have known how passionate I am about Judaism, they, they're going to listen to me when I tell them what happened with Jesus. And Jesus said, no, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Far away to places like Thessalonica. Now, Paul would have his chance in Jerusalem. We just read that, too, uh, this week. But God's primary purpose was to send him to places like Thessalonica. So he says in verse 4, God entrusted the gospel to us. Paul didn't come to Thessalonica because it was his plan. This was not what he wanted to do. It was God's idea. God sent him out. So, So first of all, he's answering the question of bad motives by saying, I'm doing this because God gave us the gospel and God sent us out to do this. But then another part of its answer about their motives in verse 4 is that God is examining them. It's actually, they're actually in the verse two different times when he uses, uh, it's two different forms of the same word, but it's the Greek word that means to examine. Um, And we don't see it necessarily, you don't notice it at first in our English translation, but we could translate verse 4 like this. Just as we have been examined by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who examines our hearts. So he says it twice. God has examined us, and God is constantly examining our hearts. You might think of it like those signs on restaurants that show the grade they received when the county health department showed up to inspect them. And I don't know whether you trust that stuff or not, but the idea is to give you confidence that somebody's checking up on them to try to make it less likely you're going to, you know, come home with listeria after you eat at that restaurant. God was the one checking on Paul and his team. God was the one examining their hearts, and that makes it hard to get away with bad motives. So in reality, their only goal, he says in verse 4, was just to please God. Verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know. Flattery is the most obvious people pleasing of all, right? Telling the people how great they are and how wonderful they are and how Thessalonica is the best place Paul ever visited. No, no flattery. We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext a cloak or a mask to cover up greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Dr. Wema tells about one ancient Greek orator who said to the crowd, Praise me! And they said, What do you mean by praise? And he said, cry out, bravo and marvelous. (laughs) You had to tell them to cry out marvelous? Bravo. But that's what a stage performer knows how to do. Make the crowd give you glory. Paul says, you know we didn't do that. Verse 7, but we were gentle among you. Now, if you're looking at the ESV, you have a footnote there which says, some manuscripts, infants. And that's probably actually the stronger manuscript tradition. The Greek word gentle and the Greek word infants have one letter difference between them. 
either word fits here. Um, so let's take them one at a time. If we use the word infants, then the beginning of verse 7 goes with verse 6. In other words, we didn't seek glory. We weren't demanding. Instead, we were like infants. And the word refers to a very young child. Now, that might sound funny at first. But remember, Jesus used this word to say, it is the little ones who praise him. He said he's, he's hidden truth from the wise, and he's revealed it to the little ones. And Paul said, same word, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20, that when it comes to evil, we should all be like little children. And so it actually would make sense that Paul would say, look, you know that we were not like demanding, deceptive dictators. We were more like little children, just simple and direct, without deceit or guile. Now, if we use the word gentle instead, um, then the beginning of verse 7 goes with the rest of verse 7. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. The word is the word for a wet nurse, but then it says she's taking care of her own children. So the illustration is of a mother nursing her own baby. And that's got a lot of weight, doesn't it? Paul was not messing around here. He was being falsely accused of greed, deception, showmanship, selfishness. You've all had this happen sometime, right? When you were doing something genuinely, sacrificially, lovingly, and somehow somebody came in and said, you're just in it for yourself. Man, that cuts deep. That was Paul's situation. And so in verse 7, he uses an intense metaphor. He's like, here's the truth. The truth is, we treated you like a nursing mother treats her own baby. That's how gentle we were. That's how much we cared for you. That's how genuine we were. How genuine is a mom nursing her own baby? Who says to a nursing mom, hmm, what are you really up to here? We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you, that's an odd phrase in English. It just means we cared for you very much. And he says it in the present tense to make it clear. We didn't just care for you when we were there. We still, now that we're gone, we still care for you just as much. So because we cared for you, verse 8, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Very dear to us. That's the word often translated beloved. It refers to a very special relationship to one who is dearly loved. So at the beginning and the end of verse 8, he says, we cared and we still care very much for you. And then at the end, you became very dear to us. You were beloved to us. And then in between those things, he says something even stronger than that. He says, We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Okay, so it helps me to picture three different, um, I'm oversimplifying, but three different categories of of people or a relationship we might have. On one hand, on one side, you may have people who are genuinely deceptive and greedy and they've got impure motives and they're just trying to take advantage of you for their own profit. Okay? There's that category. Then there's another category in which um, people are um, 
making you feel like they care for you, but it's not really personal. Like, a good musician knows how to get on stage and make the people in the audience feel like that musician knows you, that musician gets you, that musician cares for you. They build this almost like camaraderie. And it's not necessarily deceptive. I mean, they're providing a product, a stage show, and you're paying for it. And so there's not necessarily deception there. But if you get a flat tire on the way home from the concert, you're probably not going to call them. You're like, hey, you know, you said in the concert, you, you know, you love us, your fans, and I could really use help with this flat tire right now. Uh, not going to be like that. Um, so there's that category. And then there's this other category in which someone is actually personally committed to you, and they would do anything for you. Paul says they would have done anything for the Thessalonians. They weren't just there to give them the gospel and go on their way. They were willing to give their own selves. These are, these are verses that have been very important to me for at least 25 years since God really began working in my heart about pastoring. Um, these have been some of my favorite verses. Uh, and I'll talk more about that next Sunday because it, it really continues to the end of the chapter. So I'll, I'll probably talk about it more then. But the, the, what's this, the package here, the, the combination of courage, compassion, love, selflessness that you have described here is exactly the kind of pastor I hope to be. It is exactly the kind of love that I hope to have for you. Um, So this is one of the most meaningful passages in all of the New Testament for me as a pastor. But more on that next Sunday. Now, verse 9 gives us one of the proofs that they were willing to give their own selves. He says in verse 9, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day. So if Paul had a leatherworking booth set up in the market in Thessalonica, it was hard work. He uses the words labor and toil. And you could find Paul there both days and nights, working whenever he needed to, whatever he had to do to pay the bills. Why? Well, the rest of verse 9 says that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So Paul didn't have any problem with churches supporting his missions work. As a matter of fact, when he was in Thessalonica, the Philippian church was already supporting his missions work. So it's not like there was any problem with that. But when Paul was preaching the gospel to people for the first time, he didn't want money to have anything to do with it. He didn't want there to be any expectation on them other than that they just respond to what God was doing in their hearts. And so he would consistently work to earn the money that was needed so that when he was bringing the gospel brand new to a city, the very earliest stages of church planning, there was no, no financial expectation on those people at all. So they worked hard in Thessalonica to earn the money that they needed. They probably did a lot of ministry from right there in the shop. Is that what fraudsters do? Do they get a job in town and work really hard so that they can give you their elixir for free? would kind of ruin the whole point, right? So now verse 10. You are witnesses. You saw it yourselves. And God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. 
For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So now we've got another illustration, right? We had the nursing mother with her own child. Now we have a father with his children. And the father illustration could have many aspects, but he's got one in mind here. He says, like a father, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. A father should be deeply invested in the nurture and development of his children. This is a a consistent picture of, of part of the role of fathers in Scripture. Sometimes that's easy. Sometimes that's fun. Sometimes it's hard, and the child doesn't want to be pushed ahead like that. But a dad feels this responsibility for healthy growth. It, it shouldn't be okay with a dad if his children aren't developing and aren't learning and aren't growing like they should. So we read them books when they're little. We try to make sure they get healthy food that they need. We try to track their educational progress. We try to teach them how to ride a bike. When they get older, you know, I want my girls to know how to pump gas, make a budget. The New Testament says, Fathers, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But now the point here isn't about parenting, is it? Though there's a principle there for parenting. The point here is that Paul, when Paul and his team were in Thessalonica, they were sober, they were serious, they were not like fraudsters. They were like fathers who felt this weight of responsibility for their children. And in verse 12, he says specifically, what we were willing to do was exhort and encourage and charge. Parents, which of those three does your children enjoy? The second, encouragement. How do they do with the first and third? Not so well. But you do it anyways. Why? Because of what you can get out of it? Because of the blessing for you when your children get upset at you and argue back and push you and ask why and what and why you're so mean to me? Is that why we exhort? Is that why we charge? No. It's because we love them and we know our responsibility before God. You don't do it because they'll like you. You do it because it's right. And it's important. So, if Paul was like a serious father who knows he has to help his children grow, does that sound anything like a fraudster with selfish motives? So I said we wanted to see the tone and the focus of verses 11 and 12. The tone is sober, like a father feels the weight of responsibility to help his children grow. Now, what's the focus The focus is, well, the word is there in verse 12. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Right. The goal wasn't Paul's glory. The goal wasn't Paul's money. The goal was God. And that the Thessalonians would respond to God's call into his own kingdom and glory. Those are the things that would matter forever. So there was no game going on here. This was genuine. And it was actually from God, and it was actually for God. Okay, so that's how far we're going to go this morning. 
in, um, in chapter 2, and then we'll finish out the rest of the chapter next Sunday. So as we've worked through this, we can see that Paul has added one reason after another to prove that they didn't come to Thessalonica as fraudsters. And he knows the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians actually know that. They didn't come with deception. They didn't have false motives. They weren't in it for glory or money. So in the end, the attempt to tear down this brand new church in Thessalonica, it's failed. It failed because these accusations were made up. They were just satanic attempts to unsettle these new Christians, and thankfully they failed. So now, here's what I'd like us to do. I'd like to just try this as an example of how we might apply the Bible to ourselves. So we're going to read it one more time, and when we do that, could you suppose that you're just reading it on your own um, at home, like it's for Thessalonians 2 is in your own daily Bible reading. And how would you try to apply this to yourself? Because this letter addresses a situation that's not our situation. So we'll need to look for principles here that apply beyond the exact situation. So as we read this now, watch, watch for principles. Verse 1, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain not something that was empty. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were like infants among you, or we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, caring for you very much, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So, what kind of principles can we find here? The most direct, the most, uh, di- the most direct to the context, I think, would be principles for pastors. And there are a lot of those here, right? Pastors should be bold with the gospel in the face of great opposition. Their motives should never be tainted with error or impurity or deception, but rather be sincere like a small child. Pastors can't do what will please man. They've got to please God. They can't seek glory from people. They should be gentle like a nursing mother with her own child. They should genuinely care for people and love people and be ready to give their own self, not just words from a platform, but to give their own lives for people. They should be willing to labor and toil not to be a burden. They should live holy and righteous and blameless lives. They should be like loving fathers who take the gospel seriously and soberly exhort and encourage and charge. That's a, that's a pretty powerful picture of the heart of a true shepherd, isn't it? And a good reminder for you to pray that God will raise up pastors, because that is a lot. God can do it. 
So there's principles for pastors. Then if we step back one step from the context, many of those are also principles for leaders in general. So if you're any other kind of leader in the church, if you are a parent, if you have some sort of leadership in, in the business world or elsewhere, there are principles here that apply to you. These are the kind of leaders, the principles here point to the kind of leaders who reflect Christ to others, leaders who aren't in it for themselves. They're not trying to manipulate and control everyone else. They're willing to work hard to not be a burden on other people. They're going to stay strong in the face of opposition. They're going to be gentle and caring and loving, but they're also not going to be afraid to do the hard things and upset people when it's needed. That's the kind of Christ-like leaders we want to be, leaders in business, leaders in church, leaders in our homes as we walk with Christ. So if you're a leader, if you're a parent, for example, try reading this passage from that perspective. Thirdly, there are principles here for choosing a church. Because if there are principles here about how to lead a church, then that tells us something about how to choose a church. There are many things to consider when choosing a church, but what kind of leadership should you be looking for? This passage would say you ought to be looking for the character the approach, and the motives of the leaders. What kind of character do the pastors and other leaders have? Is it holy, righteous, and blameless? What kind of approach do they take? On one hand, is their approach overbearing, like a domineering, controlling kind of leadership? Or on the other hand, are they just crowd pleasers who are going to do whatever will keep people happy? What is their character? What is their approach? And then what do their motives seem to be? Now, obviously, motives are tricky. They're hard to see. We can be deceptive about our motives, but over time, you can usually start to tell. Is this about greed? Is this about the pastor's glory? Or is this about God and the good of the people whom God is calling into his own kingdom and glory? So those are principles that might help with choosing a church. They also remind you about what kind of pastors you should want. Do you know some people want a domineering pastor who's kind of cocky and always firing away at people and makes, makes us all feel like we're all smart and right all the time? Some people like the pragmatic pastor who just gets stuff done no matter what so that it's always fun and there's always big stuff going on. Some people like the cocky pastor who's kind of fun to listen to as he rips on everybody else. Some people like the soft pastor who won't ever make them feel too uncomfortable. So simply put, sometimes churches have bad pastors because it's exactly what the people want. So God calls us as pastors to make sure we're this kind of pastors. He also calls you to want this kind of pastor, the First Thessalonians 2 kind of a pastor. Then there are also principles for evangelism here in this passage. I won't spend a lot of time on that, but you could read the passage from that perspective and you see principles like sincerity, selflessness, courage, persistence, and the willingness to not just give the gospel to somebody else, but to share yourself with them. So principles for evangelism. And then finally, not that there are not others, just finally of this list that I gave you. There are principles here about salvation. And I want to just put that in two headings. First of all, the value of the gospel. So we're looking back now at verses 11 and 12. They picture a father's sober responsibility. 
We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So, what's the value of the gospel? Why was Paul willing to keep going when he was getting beaten for the gospel? Why was he willing to work night and day to pay his own bills? Why was he so excited when he saw evidence that they had truly been born again? Why was he so earnest about their spiritual growth? Because what's at stake here is described at the end of verse 12 as God's own kingdom and glory. That's what God calls people to. And you should contrast that with the end of chapter 1, verse 10, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So on one hand, there are those who will face the wrath to come. And on the other hand, there were those who will enter into God's kingdom and glory. So what is the value of the gospel? It can be measured by God's kingdom and glory in contrast to the wrath of God. So what is God's kingdom and glory? Start with kingdom. Right now, we live under earthly kings. But someday, God is going to reign all of this earth for a thousand years and then in the new heaven and new earth forever. There will be no fights over who should be speaker of the house. There will be no government shutdowns while politicians argue about the budget. There will be no elections, no broken promises, no empty agendas. Earthly kingdoms are a wreck. God's kingdom will be perfect. And God called you into his kingdom forever. Then, what is God's glory? Because it says he calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Okay, so glory, God's glory, is the display or the outworking of his unique greatness. No one is like him in power or wisdom or fairness or love or patience or faithfulness or creativity or knowledge. That's his character, okay? But that glory is not fully displayed on earth right now. There are ways in which we can see it. But when God's glory is fully manifested on earth, it will be the end for sinners. His perfect justice and wrath against all sin and evil will be unleashed on earth when his glory is fully displayed on earth. And so in his mercy, God has not done that yet. And that means that right now, we only see his glory in little glimpses. We also look back on many times when God allowed glimpses of his glory, like the flood or Mount Sinai, the Red Sea, Jericho, those things. But most of all, Jesus Christ, right? We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That was the greatest glimpse of God's glory. Yet, it was still a glimpse because Jesus glory as God was veiled by his humanity. So it was, it was all of God's glory that he wanted to reveal through his Son. All that we need to know to be saved through Jesus. But that was not a full unleashing of the glory of God on creation. You follow what I'm saying there? And so a day is coming when God will unleash his glory on creation, and then he will unleash his glory in the new creation. And so elsewhere, Paul wrote, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What will it be like when the one who is perfectly good 
unleashes all of his goodness to do its work in all of creation, and there is no devil and no demons and no sin and no suffering and nothing to hinder it in any way. It's just pure glory on display doing its thing. It's God's perfect character perfectly manifested in the new heavens and new earth. What will that be like? It's coming, and God called you to be there. God saved you so that you could enjoy the unhindered unleashing of His glory forever. Paul says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. That is the value of the gospel. It is the difference between the wrath of God forever and the kingdom and glory of God forever. And that's why Paul was willing to pay any price to tell them that Jesus had died and risen for them. Okay, so that's the value of the gospel. Then there is a lifestyle that is appropriate to the gospel. The value of the gospel leads to the lifestyle of the gospel. The middle of verse 12, walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You're not worthy of God's kingdom, neither am I. We cannot earn a ticket to the eternal display of his glory. God has to make us worthy, and he sent Christ so that all who repent and believe are made worthy through Christ alone. And yet, when God calls us to himself and saves us and makes us worthy and makes us his children and gives us a new heart and gives us his spirit, we should then seek to live in a way that is worthy of that calling. Live in a way that fits a kingdom citizen. Live in a way that is appropriate for someone who has been called to God's glory. I'm going to use an illustration, and it, is, it has big weaknesses. So ignore the weaknesses and stick with just the, the point. Uh, all around the world right now, there are leaders having very, very serious meetings because they're trying to figure out is there a chance that Israel's going to actually go after Iran's nuclear capabilities? Is there, you know, what all the scenarios that they're trying to play out right now and trying to be ready for? And so in Israel and Jordan and Iran and Russia and China and the U.S. and Great Britain and France and all over the place, there are very, very serious meetings going on day and night right now. So what if we could peer into one of those meetings and we see that one guy at the table is in shorts and flip-flops He hasn't combed his hair in days. He's got a bag of potato chips and a 64-ounce Coke and a pack of Twinkies, and he's playing a video game and rocking out on his headphones. We would probably say, you know, you're acting in a way that's not worthy of the seriousness of what's going on. You're acting as if this is not a big deal. Now, I realize there are lots of illustrations. There are lots of problems with that illustration, and thankfully the Christian life isn't actually like, you know, being in the war room in the White House exactly. But it does, in a little way, parallel the seriousness and the value of the gospel. God has called you into his own kingdom and glory. And so we shouldn't live like the dude at the table enjoying his music and games and snacks with no concern for anyone or anything else. That's the point. We want to live like heirs of the kingdom and glory of God. Ephesians 4 verse 1, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord 
urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So I would just ask us as we finish this morning, can you be reminded today of the value of the gospel? And from that then, can you in a healthy way ask yourself, am I seeking to live like someone who has been called by God to his own kingdom and glory? Colossians 1, verses 9 through 12, reworded into a benediction. May you be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. May you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy that you might continually be giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Amen.